1: Welcome back to Reaching Your Heart. Pastor Michael Oxentenco's message today is entitled Risk and His Return. Now you'll find more information about this broadcast at reachingyourheart.com. You can download a copy or listen right there on demand to the entire broadcast without interruption. That's reachingyourheart.com. I'll have that information and more at the close of our broadcast today, so stay with us for just a little while afterwards let's get underway here is pastor michael oxen tenko with risk and his return
2: dear father we don't want to be lazy christians lukewarm in spirit uncommitted to the greatest hour of human history father we thank you for jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross father we are grateful that we have a cross and we can get joyous about the cause of God at this time of Earth's history. In Jesus' name, Amen. The greatest truth in the Bible is the truth that Jesus saves. I'll say that again. The greatest truth in the Bible is the truth that Jesus saves. I don't compromise that truth in this pulpit because Christ did not compromise it at the cross. It's more important than the truth of the judgment. It's more important than the Sabbath truth, which is a very important truth. You see the Sabbath is important because the Sabbath points to the Lord Jesus as the creator and savior of the human race. Being saved means resting in Jesus finished work. I mean some people out here they get ashamed of using the word saved. Now, I understand we shouldn't go around bragging about being saved. But isn't it okay to say Jesus saves? Yes or no? It is. Being saved means resting in Jesus' finished work and trusting in Jesus for the future judgment day. That's what righteousness by faith is about. It's not a slogan. It's really faith in a person who saves. Luke 19.10 provides the motive for Jesus coming to this world. I like this verse a lot. Christ said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I mean, that sends shivers down my spine. Christ came to save me and you. He came to seek that soul that was lost and could not find its way to heaven's ground. Two defining actions in Jesus' job description here as Lord. Defining action number one, Jesus came to seek the lost I mean, there are people who come to church, they go through the rounds of church, they don't think they're lost. You can be just as lost in the church as you are outside the church. Is that right? You can be just as lost here as someone is out there. The lost person doesn't know how to find God. That's the nature of being lost. So Jesus seeks out that man or woman who is groping for God, who in their heart wants to know God but just can't get it. You see, we cannot find God on our own. We cannot seek the infinite and the unknown with our intellect and our feelings. Somehow God has to break through. And when you turn to God in your life, it's not because you're good at finding God, it's because it's not because you're smart enough, it's not because you're skillful at theology, because you have the right degree, or you grew up in the church, friend. You can't even desire heavenly things unless the Spirit of God seeks the inner heart and the secret mind to disclose the grace of God to the numb stuff of the soul. We're that numb and that dumb, spiritually speaking, that God's grace that is infused into the life, it takes the action of the Holy Spirit to reach you. Christ is the hound of heaven. And He seeks the lost, trapped in the dark woods of a sinful world. I have been in such a place in my life, I can remember having a dream once of running through the woods, running from evil, and coming to the front of a church. And in that dream, I saw people there outside the church praying for me. And someone from that group in my dream came down, and I'll never forget it. They looked me square in the face and they said, this dream is true for you here. It's possible to be lost alone and afraid after years of ministry and the prayers of others can find you that's what happened to me that's how i came here that dream occurred before reaching hearts international was formed this point was driven home to me dramatically by my son my children scare me to death every now and then you have children scare you to death okay they scare me to death every now and then I got a call from my son Friday. Dad, we were rescued. I go, great. What were you doing in a situation where you had to be rescued, right? He says, well, we were a mile deep down in a cave. And there was a flash flood. And we had a choice to make. My son is an advanced caver. His major was rescue. and Now he's in nursing for pre-meds. So he wants to be a medical doctor. But he wants to focus on the area of emergency physician and so on, but he's into danger. He likes getting people out of danger. He's very careful with climbing technique and other things. I mean, it blows my mind what he's learned to do without me being around, but I didn't want to hear him call me and say, dad, I was rescued. Well, he told the story. He says, we were in the cave, flash flood. We could have gone through the water to the next cavern to get out and so on, but the danger was hypothermia, and we didn't know it was on the other side. So we had only one choice to make that was sound, to stay where we were at and wait for someone to come find us one mile deep down in the heart of the earth. Now, he would made the right move prior to this. He would left his coordinates with a caving team, seasoned, that they knew at a certain point in time, if he didn't check back, they were going after them. And true to form, they moved in the motion. Nineteen hours later, as they were moving toward hypothermia, huddled together, they were rescued by people who sought them out. Dear heart, you may be trapped in a cave and you can't find God. It may be so dark and cold where you live. God will find you out if you do not resist Him. You do not have to seek God so much as God seeks you. Christ said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. The person of the Son of God who hung on Calvary's cross for you. He traversed the great distance of eternity and infinity to become localized deity and human flesh to find you, to love you, to become one with you, to die for you, to reconcile you to God. You are loved, whether you feel it or not. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost in conjunction with the first defining action of seeking the lost. The second defining action is equally important. Defining action number two, Jesus came to save the lost. You know, finding you is not enough if He can't save you. Friend, Jesus came to save you. I mean, use that word, save came to save you. The Christian faith is ultimately focused on this central truth. How does the song go? I've heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Isn't that how it goes? I'm sure he'll turn contemporary one day. That's fine. As long as they keep the most important part of the song. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. It doesn't matter when you hear the call of Jesus, really. There is a time in life that is critical for decision, it may be early in life when in Sabbath school some godly Sabbath school teacher is teaching you about Christ and you get it and you make a decision as a young person to accept Jesus and you hang in there. That's all right. It may be in the middle of life. Maybe you just didn't get it and suddenly when you have that first child, that first commitment, you're married and something clicks. You need Jesus. It could be then. It could be in the middle of a career. You find yourself in the lonely business of trying to make money and It seems void of meaning. And you reach out to God and Christ finds you. Or it may be at the very end of your life, when your life has come full circle and you've been struggling for faith, trying to prove something to God and somehow God's not there. And at the end of life's road, you mouth the name Jesus and you call Him Lord. You're saved at that moment of time. If you hear Jesus' voice, and you hear Him calling out to you, I have come to seek and to save the lost, if you know you're lost, and even if you don't know you're lost, but you fall on your knees, and you call out to Him as Lord, you're not lost anymore. You're not lost anymore. You're found. Did you hear me? You're found. Why? Because Jesus saves. I'm not ashamed. This is the most important truth of the apostolic gospel, of the Bible, of the revelation of God in Christ that Jesus saves before Luke introduces the theme of the future judgment. We have to go over this ground. Luke 19.10 is the context for what will occur in Luke 19.11 and following. And if we go to the judgment without going to the cross, we've gone to the right place at the wrong time. We must come to Christ before we can view these sacred subjects. Before Luke introduces the theme of the future judgment, Luke establishes this concept in the clearest kind of terms. To address the issue of the judgment, friend, you must first be settled on what Jesus has done for you at the cross. If you can't confirm the cross in your life, then the judgment really doesn't matter. Why talk about it? It doesn't benefit you. It just scares you. It takes a Savior to represent you in the eschatological, in-time judgment. Or why even go there? So Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and the judgment doesn't change this vital truth, one iota. In fact, the judgment reinforces the truth that Christ came to save you. Turn with me to Luke 19.11. This is the context for this great subject that follows, Luke 19.11. The Bible says, And as they heard these things... He, speaking of Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem because they supposed that the King of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. We have the entire book of Daniel in verse 12. Everything the great book of Daniel is talking about is encapsulated in that one verse in principle. The present participle in the Greek text is used for the English expression translated here as they heard these things. What does it mean? It means that Luke 19.11 is spoken when Luke 19.10 is still fresh on the ears of those who hear. It is meant to be understood in the context of the statement that Jesus has just made, that He has come to seek and to save the lost. When people tried to drive a wedge between the work of Jesus Christ as Savior on the cross And the work of Jesus Christ is the advocate in the judgment. They are doing something Jesus Himself is not doing. But He's comfortable with both topics. He introduces the judgment in light of His saving activity, not as a contradiction to it. Christ is just as concerned about your soul and the future judgment as He was at the cross of Calvary. The person who prayed for you in the Garden of Gethsemane is the high priest who has been praying for you for centuries, looking into the future, all of your life praying for you, who in the future judgment, and really which is now present according to Bible prophecy, the pre-advent judgment, who will take your place as your friend, your substitute, your proxy, so that He can call you out by name and confess your name before the Father. I mean, I'm grateful for Christ's saving activity. I'm grateful that it's a process Rooted in a historical victory, not just an event that does not move into the future. In Luke nineteen eleven, the disciples thought that Jesus would set up his kingdom immediately. They were not familiar with the time flow of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, the four great beasts arise representing four world empires. So Daniel 7 lays out the four great world empires. We've gone through that. Followed by ten horns that come out of this fourth beast. Now, Rome transitions... 5th, 6th century, into the divided Holy Roman Empire of the Middle Ages, essentially how many kingdoms made up medieval Europe? Ten horns represent ten kings. Very good. Another little horn comes up around the 6th century. That horn is Antichrist. Why? Because that horn looks like the Son of Man, but he's not the Son of Man. That little horn is the one who challenges the right to rule in Daniel 7. He takes the church away from the Son of Man in Daniel 7. And he has to be physically removed from power because of a heavenly judgment that changes the course of human history. So that's really the context of Daniel chapter 7. And we really find that this parable that Jesus is interacting with here or giving to his disciples is really a disclosure of the key themes and teachings of Daniel 7. The little horn is that church-state kingdom in the Middle Ages that claimed to forgive sins and hold the keys of the kingdom in its hands. Daniel describes this kingdom as an imposter. And the judgment sits after 1260 years of persecution. And the little horn's dominion is taken away in this heavenly judgment at the end of the 18th century. Daniel 7.26. Let's just turn there and look at this verse. The court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And look at the reversal here. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the most high. The Bible is absolutely clear that the kingdom of heaven will be given to the saints of the most high. But in the parable Luke 19:12, Jesus plainly states that a nobleman went off into a far-off country to receive his kingdom and then return. In the context, he doesn't receive his kingdom here on earth. He receives it in heaven. So why does he go to that far-off country? To receive his kingdom. Once that activity is over, then he returns. And we find in Daniel chapter 7 that that's exactly what is transpiring. Now, before we look at Daniel 7, 13, 14, there was a story that was real, which was a historical event in Jesus' day that was context for this parable. Evil King Herod tried to kill Jesus when he was born. You remember that? took all the babes of Bethlehem, had boys under two years of age killed. Christ, of course, fled to Egypt with Joseph, came back, grew up in Nazareth, and so on. Now, evil King Herod had a son named Archilus. Now, I hope you never name your child Archilus. It's an awful name as far as I'm concerned because he was as bad as his daddy. But Archilus wanted to be king. His father wanted to be king. problem was... Augustus Caesar was the king of the Roman Empire. So how do you get to be king if your daddy wants you to be king, but you've really got to answer the big king? Well, Herod had written a will saying Archelaus will be king. But without Augustus Caesar's approval, he couldn't be king. So here's what he did. He went into a far-off country. He went to the capital of the Roman Empire to see Augustus Caesar, to ask him if he would in fact appoint him as king, honoring his father's will. But there was a delegation of Jewish leaders who followed him to Rome, who did their level best to prevent him from being king. Well, they were partially successful. He was appointed king of one-third of his father's empire. When he got back to Palestine, you can guess what happened to that delegation of leaders. They probably suffered a very cruel death. And that's the context for the parable here. Christ has a real historical event that he's interacting with. Daniel describes the scene as it began shortly after the 1260 years of medieval persecution. According to the book of Daniel, Christ goes into a far-off country to receive his kingdom from the great king of the universe. And we have the event recorded right here, verse 13, Daniel 7. The Bible says, "...I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man." He came to the Ancient of Days, was presented before Him, and to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In a pre-Advent heavenly judgment in Daniel 7, Christ comes before the Ancient of Days, before He comes back at the end of the world. Some people say, well, Pastor Mike, how do you know there's some judgment in heaven prior to the second coming? Because the Bible says so. How's that for an answer? Just very directly. We see the Son of Man coming before the Father. The books are open, judgment starts, and you're not there. It's a proxy, he represents his people and he receives his kingdom from the Father. In a sense, he's married to the kingdom, and it's the kingdom of heaven because he receives it in that far-off country rather than receiving it here. And once he's finished in the parable, he returns to the earth. So the parable focuses on what would happen contextually between the time he leaves for that far-off country and the time he returns. The parable introduces the concept of risk in the context of his soon return. The word return here is a pun that I'm using. It means two things. It means a return on the investment, which is his, and his physical return that makes it happen. Friend, whenever you invest in life, there is risk. How many of you have lost money in the stock market for your IRA? Most people have, haven't they, over time? Remember that big crash that happened around 2000? A few people made a lot of money, everybody else didn't. The trick was to diversify, right? Some of you are saying, well, the trick is not to invest at all. Well, this parable is for you. You cannot have a return unless you take the risk to invest. Did you hear me? I know all this bad talk about capitalism in our culture. It's amazing how ignorant that talk is. I'm just going to be frank with you. I'm not into money, but I know that that's foolish talk. And I'm going to tell you why it's foolish talk. Communism is based upon the philosophy of atheism. And here's why. If you read the documents, you know this. It's based on the idea there's only so many material resources that can go around. You cannot create wealth in a communist mentality, you must redistribute wealth. Wealth creation and the capitalist engine that gave us the modern Western world was created in part, and to a large part, by the Protestant Reformation. The belief that you can take a little and through faith and work, God can multiply it and create wealth. One is based on faith in God. The other is based on no faith in God. And if you want to look for an evidence of how destructive that philosophy has been, millions of people have died since the theory was envisioned by Karl Marx. It came right out of the French Revolution. The bloodbath of the French Revolution gave us communism. Communism gave us the Bolshevik Revolution, which was another bloodbath. If you chronicle Mayo and you look at what happened also in Russia under Stalin, who wants that philosophy? Now, friend, I'm not into politics. I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. Did you hear me? I don't care for either party. Now, I'm in trouble already. I believe in God's party. But in God's church and His system... You are to take your little and grow it for God and turn it into a lot. God will infuse divine power into that which seems insignificant to make it burgeon and multiply into infinite resources if necessary. Christ said you will receive power when the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and you shall be my witnesses Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. He didn't say, well, there are only so many pieces of the pie. You can't use this energy here. it will be lost here. He said, wherever you go in my name, there are resources, power. Heaven will meet the need. Now, that's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? And so we must think in these terms when we advance the work of God in our own lifetime. We must not surrender to this other mentality. In a pre-advent heavenly judgment in Daniel 7, Jesus comes before the ancient days to receive a kingdom. And we're to be doing something on earth with our talents, with what God has given us. You cannot have a return unless you'd have risk. In the parable, there are two choices to be made. The choice of risk and investing talents for the nobleman's cause and the certain outcome that comes when no risk at all occurs because you're afraid. His return will bring a return on your investment if you trust Jesus. That's the point of the parable. Look at verse 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten pounds, and he said to them, Trade these till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent an embassy after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. That's exactly what the Jews did. When Archelaus wanted to reign in the place of his father, King Herod, they sent a delegation to Rome to stop it. And as a result, he only got a part of the kingdom. When he got home, of course, I imagine he butchered that delegation, so we don't know much of them now. But in the broader sense, the delegation represents a rebellion in the Christian church in the Middle Ages that misused the talents of the Christian faith. Look at the verse very carefully. In the parable, the nobleman gave his servants how many pounds? What does it say? Ten pounds. He didn't give them nine pounds. He didn't give them 11 pounds. How many pounds did he give them? Come on, tell me. Ten pounds. Now, ten pounds represents the riches of His law made effectual by the cross of Christ. The ten pounds obviously draws the mind to ten commandments. In the New Covenant experience where the law of God is written on the heart of His people. In the New Covenant, God writes that ten commandment law on your heart and it becomes a treasure for you to do God's will, not an inconvenience Jesus said He came to fulfill the law and not do away with the law. And the preachers of our land today say Jesus came to do away with the law. And they make Christ out to be a liar. You can't have a new covenant in which the law of God is written on your hearts if you have no law. Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He came to find the lawless heart to fill it with love, forgiveness, and grace so it would obey for the right reasons. And so the nobleman gave them ten pounds because of grace. And when you invest in God's will in your life, which the 10 pounds represents, a Holy Spirit action so you can do the right thing, you will have a return that is sure and safe in your life. The misuse of the 10 pounds represents the rebellion against God's law and the rebellion against the one who came to seek and to save the lost.
1: Well, that will cover the first portion of Risk and His Return Today's Reaching Your Heart. Thank you so much for listening today. As always, you can go to ReachingYourHeart.com, look for the broadcast schedule there on the main page, and download a copy of this broadcast. You'll find it in its entirety again under the broadcast schedule there at ReachingYourHeart.com. If you can help us out with a financial contribution while you're on that website, it is so much appreciated, and thank you for doing that to send you a contribution through the mail. The address here is Reaching Hearts International, 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That's 6100 Brooklyn Bridge Road, Laurel, Maryland, 20707. That is also the address for the worship service this Saturday at 11 o'clock. If you're in the area, please stop by. We'd love to have you as our guest. And thanks for listening. As always, we pray God is reaching your heart.